do the offering here, but I'm just going to give you an announcement quick before I do that of an event that has come our way that, uh, that I just want to share with you. There is a, a church plant in Canmore that's been there for about four and a half years called The Karen, and Pastor Craig has been working on this idea for what he's calling the Gospel Symposium. And our ministerial has kind of rallied behind this, and so most of the churches in the Bow Valley are participating in one way or another. And, and basically what it is is this. It's June 18th, so you can mark that on your calendar or uh, promptly forget, and then we'll update you online. But uh, June 18th, and it's going to be in the afternoon. And what it is, we want to redefine in a biblical context something that we've forgotten, and that's this. That your work, that what you do for a living, how you make money to survive is not only about survival and paying bills, but that God has purpose in your work. And that you can glorify God and that you can honor him with how you work, with what you do, and there are unique ways in which we can think about how to work and the gospel correlate together in my journey as a believer in Christ. And so that's what's going to happen. So we're inviting people from all over the place. There's a, a registration. It, the, there's no cost. It is a free event, but you do need to register for it because we have limited seating. It's going to be at the Canmore Opera House, uh, which I've never been inside. How many have? So, so you kind of have an idea that we'll have about 150 people that we can have there, and that's all the churches in the Bow Valley. So we're hoping that it fills up quickly. What it's going to look like is we're bringing in somebody who's kind of an expert in this area to kind of give us about a 45-minute, um, we'll call it the keynote address, and then it's going to shift into some podcasting type of thing with also interviews of other people. Now, those other people are going to be people that you know in the Bow Valley. So one thing that's really exciting is we're doing one specific area on the gospel and retirement. What does it look like to use your retirement intentionally for the gospel? And a friend of ours from the church here, Jim McClelland, when he gets home, he's going to be our panel expert, we're going to call him. Uh, he is very uncomfortable with me calling him that, but he's very willing to help us with this, and we're really excited. So there's going to be several different kind of areas, retirement. Uh, there's going to be a rock climber that's going to come. There's going to be a barista that's coming, and they're all going to be on that panel where we get to kind of ask questions of, how do you as a barista uh, use your career for Christ? What are ways in which you think outside of the box so it's not just about you know, working so that you can get paid so that you can go get your ski pass and so you can be on the hill all, all season? Uh, so it's an exciting opportunity for no matter what your career is, God has purpose in that, and this is meant to be a discussion starter for that. And then at the end of that, then of course, we always want to end everything with a giant meal, so we're having a catered meal. Uh, at the end, that is no cost to you. There's childcare provided for the event. So if you have kids, they are going to be well looked after. Uh, so we just encourage you. Now, Shayla's putting some stuff together for social media, and we'll send it out via email as well. There'll be a registration link on there as well as any other information. And Pastor Craig's email if you, or phone, if you would like to actually just be in touch with him and ask him some questions, you can do that. So that's the Gospel Symposium, June 18th. Uh, you can mark that down. All right, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll take the offering up. And there's just a reminder as well that if you, uh, if you 
are visiting and you'd like to contribute uh, in any way, there's zero obligation. We don't expect anybody to do that. But if you'd like to and you're just kind of thinking, man, I didn't bring a checkbook, that's because we live in the year 2022. And uh, most of us don't have checkbooks anymore. You are welcome to give online. If you go to our website anytime, bampparkchurch.com, there's a link you can click give and, and you can do that online and you will get a tax receipt that way. There's no, no problem there. But we just want to remind people of that, that there is that option. Um, because if you're anything like me, you have one checkbook and you slowly are working your way through that thing hoping you never ever have to pay for checks again. <laughs> Doug, you just feed my ego so much. I love it. Thank you, buddy. Let's, uh, let's pray and, and, uh, and then we'll take up the offering. God, we are just again so grateful that we have such opportunity to come and to worship you. And God, I just want to thank you for bringing those who are visiting uh, this morning, whether they're from near or whether they're from far, thank you for bringing them here to join us, our, this church family. God, we thank you that this is a very unique thing, that we as Christians, that we can go anywhere in the world and we can walk into a church and we belong. We're part of that family. And so we thank you for the universal church. We thank you that we are all part together and that we can lift your name corporately in worship as we have just done through song, but that we can also in a moment here open scripture and we can study our way through it and we can see what you are trying to teach us about who you are, your character, about the gospel, about how Jesus came, what he did, and how we have hope moving forward in our lives. So God, we just thank you for all of these things. God, we pray for those who are traveling. We know there's still many away, and we just pray that as they head home uh, in the coming days and weeks, that you would grant them uh, mercies on the road or in the plane or whatever the transportation mode that they're taking, that you would just bring them back safe to us, and that we look forward to just a very exciting season of ministry here this summer. God, we pray for uh, all of our community as a whole, the business owners here, that as things get busier and picking up again, that there would be great opportunity for us to interact and to minister to one another. God, as we think about our work, as we think about even priming the pump for this conversation that's going to happen on June 18th, God, would you really challenge our hearts to think that where you have called us, what you have called us to do, has purpose and meaning, and you want to use us in that for the furthering of the gospel. And so we just pray that we would consider those things and that we would be excited for this symposium on the 18th and that we would be really eager to hear from these other panelists and these other people. God, we pray for those in our community here who are unwell, whether they're batting illness, whether that's short-term or long-term, or whether they're just a little under the weather today and and not able to join us. Whatever it might be, God, you know what each person needs. And so, God, if it's physical healing that they need, we pray that you would provide that for them. God, if it's emotional, if they're just under so much stress and anxiety and frustrations that the world has brought or, or, or the external circumstances that they're facing, we pray that you would intervene and that you would help them realize that they can cast their cares upon you. God, whatever the unique situation is, we know that you love each one, and so we pray that you would minister to them this morning. God, as we give back of our tithes and our offerings to you, once again, we are reminded that everything that we have is only a gracious gift from your hand. And so we thank you. God, we want to be good stewards of everything that you entrust to us. And so God, I pray that 
you would bless those who give, but that you would also really challenge the, the leadership team of our church to be good stewards of, of those gifts and that we would use those things well for your kingdom, that your kingdom would grow. God, we just thank you for all of these things now. As we open your word, would you reveal to us the truth in it, the things that we need to see for our own hearts that we would grow closer with you. We thank you now. Amen. All right, you can, I've been excited to say this for a long time, you can turn back to Daniel. We started through here um, at the beginning of the year in January, and we've been slowly working our way. So if you're visiting us here, that's kind of what we do here is we pick a book of the Bible and we work our way through it and we learn uh, what is God trying to teach us about who he is, his character, and what he's trying to teach us in our lives, in our situation. And so we've been going through this book of Daniel, but then uh, our family disappeared to Africa, South Africa, for a few weeks, and then we had uh, missionaries, and then we had Easter, so it's been over a month since we've been back in Daniel. And so I just want to spend just a couple of minutes uh, going through a little overview, uh, assuming, you know, a month is a long time to forget where we've been, and so we're going to remind ourselves of that, and if you're visiting as well, then that's a great opportunity for you to kind of not feel like you're missing out on anything. So from a historical standpoint... The book of Daniel is written um, by the prophet Daniel right shortly after the nation of Israel has been conquered and has been carried off into exile in Babylon. So Babylon is this this world power. It's it's a short-lived kingdom, all things considered, but an incredibly powerful one. And they have gone down to Jerusalem. They have conquered the southern tribes. The northern tribes have been conquered a little while before. But they've all been brought off into captivity, and that's where the book of Daniel begins. And as you kind of, if you think about the Bible as the narrative of Scripture, what we we learn is right away in the beginning, we learn that man sins, that man chooses to trust in themselves rather than God, and kind of the rest of the unfolding of that is God's plan to redeem man back to himself ultimately through Jesus. And so as we kind of read the Old Testament, you're kind of tracing this and watching this, and so this is kind of a pivotal moment for the Jewish nation. Because there was a promise given to King David that through your lineage, the Messiah would come and that he would reign as a king forever. And so there were certain assumptions that the Jewish people had. And and now that they were conquered and captured and brought into exile and they no longer had a functioning kingdom, there was all this question of, is God still faithful? How is God going to do what he said he would do? And so there's uncertainty, and and the nation as a whole, even though the prophets had warned, if you do not follow God, if you continue to reject him, these are the things that are going to happen. Even though they warned them of this, when it did happen, they were kind of like, well, we just, we can't even have faith in God. We can't trust God anymore. And so we've kind of been watching that, if, if as you think of the narrative of Scripture, and then Daniel and his friends are a few, a very few amongst all of this nation that is often Babylon that goes, you know what? We can still trust God. God is still fully in control. He is sovereign. And we are only reaping the benefit of what we knew would happen through the prophets if we did not listen to God. But we know that God is strong enough and that God is powerful enough that God can still redeem the Jewish nation back to himself and ultimately the whole world can be redeemed. And so they choose to be faithful in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. And that's kind of where we camped out for a number of weeks is this theme 
That as we learn about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we learn about some of these incredible stories that, that maybe we learned back in Sunday school, the fiery furnace, the uh, Daniel and the lion's den, some of these very you know, iconic stories, is we can remind ourselves that in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our hurt and hardship and pain, that God is still at work. That nothing has, nothing has changed in that regard. He still loves us just as he did uh, the Jewish nation at that point, and he was still at work. And, and the encouragement then comes for us in this. Just because I don't know what's going on, just because I can't really understand what's going on, doesn't mean that God doesn't have plan and purpose. In fact, the book tells us very plainly over and over and over, God is in control. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, you think you're in control? No. God says, I'm still in control. And as the nations kind of crumble and, and as the Medo-Persians take over, we see God still going, no, you think you're in control, but no, I am. And I have purpose. And I'm working. And I am ultimately going to bring the Messiah through all of this because God is faithful and we can trust him. And so that brings us to chapter 7 at this point, and, uh, and just before we read it, I just want to clarify this, because we got to the end of chapter 6, and it had been a fairly chronological view of Daniel, but now in chapter 7, we go back a few years. So in chapter 6, the Medo-Persia government is already ruling, Babylon has fallen, but in chapter 7 here, we're going to go back a few years to when Belshazzar was first reigning as a successor of, of Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus, and so uh, they're nearing the end of the Babylonian empire at this point. And so just don't get confused in that, uh, in the timeline, because now, kind of from now until the end, the timeline isn't as chronological as we might expect. So let's read chapter 7 together. Uh, I was going to try and shorten this, but I think we just, uh, it makes the most sense to rip through this whole thing. So uh, the words will be on the back if you don't have a Bible. Uh, and, and that being said, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have a Bible, we have all kinds of Bibles in this building, in the library. So if you don't have one and you'd like one, just let us know and we'll put one in your hands before you leave. So let's read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in its horns were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts, all four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beasts, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down, th- sorry, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarm me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I think these are the chapters in the Bible that kind of are the reason why people avoid certain topics like this. As you read this and you're like, there is all kinds of stuff going on here, and most of which I don't understand or know how to even visualize. And so what we're going to do is we're not going to ignore these things. We're going to try and understand them uh, as, as best as we can. And what I'm really focusing on here this morning is this. For, for much of the rest of the book of Daniel, it's a lot of this vision stuff. It's a lot of this, what we call this eschatological view. What is going to happen in the end times? Here's my warning. 
is I think in our desire as people to understand what's going to happen in the end, we miss what's happening there now. In our desire to understand the details of what the end is going to look like, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, so we'll get there, but the Antichrist, and what does that mean, and what does that look like? In our hopes of that, we misunderstand or ignore what the point of the text is. And so if you're hoping that I'm going to give you the year that the world is going to come to an end, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you're hoping that I'm going to tell you at what generation or what these things are going to look like or exactly which kingdoms are going to come in the future or is Putin the Antichrist, you're going to be very sorely disappointed because I'm not going to say any of that. Actually, I will clarify Putin's probably not, but we'll get there in a minute. That's not the point of this, and don't get distracted by some of this, like, man, that's so confusing, that's so bizarre. What will that look like and sound like, and, and, and is this literal and is this, or is this figurative? We're going to get there. But the main point of this is going to remain the main point of this. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to over and over hammer this point home that God is in control. And that regardless of right now and the circumstances that we're facing and the confusion that's happening in the world and wars that are taking place all over the place and nations that are being destroyed and genocides that have been happening, all of those kinds of things, there's hope in this text to remind us that God wins. And regardless of where you find yourself in the course of history, whether in Daniel's time or whether in our time now, is that God wins. And so we can trust him in that. I will clarify that at length here, but I want to say that from the outset. So as we read some of these things, as we hear some of these bizarre images given, um, I think what we need to remind ourselves of is the Jewish people who would be hearing this, the people who would be reading the book of Daniel initially, none of this is new to them. The imagery, these idea of beasts and, and, you know, the four winds and the depths of the sea and all of this stuff, this is all through Old Testament. So this would be very familiar stuff to them. Now, I'm not saying that that means they would know how to interpret it all exactly right. That's not the point. But the point is when we read it, we go, man, this is weird. And they wouldn't have said that. And so one of the most helpful things you can do is if you get to a place like this in the Bible where it becomes very confusing or, or a lot of image-related stuff is the best thing that you can do is go find some commentaries from Jewish expert scholars, people who are going to interpret this in light of the rest of the Old Testament and help you understand these images, not in a sense of our context here and now, but the original hearers, what they would have understood. And so a lot of what I'm going to tell you this morning comes from two of those types of commentators. Uh, but before we get there, as we read chapter 7 and the image that Daniel sees now, did it remind you of anything that we've already read in Daniel? Everyone nod, yes. And that makes me feel better inside that we did a good job. It's a long time ago. But chapter 2, chapter 2, we talked about uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, right, of this image, four kingdoms, right? Some parallel here. And these four kingdoms are going to rule and they're going to get, essentially they're going to get morally speaking, worse and worse and worse, and the influence is going to spread and spread, and, and people of faith are going to be persecuted under them until the rock comes and crushes and destroys the statue, and then the Messiah will reign. Like, do we see some parallels between chapter 2 and chapter 7? We certainly should see them. And what's really interesting, in chapter 2, 
Daniel interpreted all those things to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, a few years later, a very similar dream with very similar images are coming through, and what does he say about it? I'm alarmed. I don't even know how to interpret this. And he, he goes to an angel that is revealing this to him and asks, can you reveal this to me? And so we're reminded, oh, right, it's not Daniel that has the power to interpret dreams. It's who? God working through Daniel. And so Daniel sees these things. He needs to be reminded, here's what's going on. Now, the most difficult question for us And this is why I say it's important that we go back to kind of the apocalyptic literature, the experts of those from the Jewish standpoint. Because the most difficult question, I think, in all of the Bible to ask or answer is this. What do we interpret allegorically and what do we interpret literally? What do we, when we read something like this, is Daniel or... John in the book of Revelation, are they trying to be literal so that we would understand it very specifically? Or are they riffing off old themes that we find in Scripture and old images that are then built upon that are trying to remind us back to that? That's the hardest thing to do. And I think if we rely on our own intelligence or our own history, our own understanding of Scripture, to do that, we're going to be sorely disappointed. We need to go and we need to study from these ancient contexts to figure out, should I study or should I understand this? Should I interpret this more literally or more figuratively? And again, I'm not trying to say that we're going to do that 100% accurately today because I don't know that for certain. But we're going to do our best to be cautious about this. I think we in our culture, in our mindset now, we have this idea that everything is linear and everything is literal and so we understand everything in the context of here and now. And so when we read something like this, our mind immediately goes to our context. We go, oh, does that mean this is the end? Because this looks an awful lot like what's happening there. And I've said this before, there's many, many books you could go that where people predicted the end of the world, right? This context, this is what's happening. World War I was one of these big moments where people went, this is, this is the end times, this is revelation fleshed out for us. Of course, then what happened? World War II came later. What happens since then? Well, from, now, from then until now, all kinds of nations all over the world, some more publicized than others, are going through incredible amounts of war and uh, un- incredibly unjust situations and even full-on genocides happening. So this is just the world that we live in. And so we want to not try and interpret it literally in our context first, but to figure out what is this trying to say to the ancient Jewish reader. I think we all understand this in conversation, in this sense. I want to tell you a story about... um, how we know whether to interpret something literally versus allegorically just in conversational language. I had some friends come to visit me when I lived in Melfort, Saskatchewan. They came from Germany, um, and they spoke excellent English, so I didn't think there would be any problem with, with interpreting anything. And so we went out for supper, and we went uh, to A&W, because when you go to Melfort, that's where you, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we went to A&W because I was very poor at that point in my life. And so we go to A&W, Right, I order my food and I go sit down and then one of my friends orders his food and he comes and sits down and another one 
orders his food, and he sits down. So the three of us are now at their table, and then one at a time, our food gets brought to us. Well, I get my meal, and it's a normal meal. My friend gets his meal, it's a normal And then the third guy, so they're both German guys, but the third guy, his comes, and he has the monstrosity of a drink and fries and the biggest burger I have ever seen. Well, here's the thing. The, the, who's the person behind the till? What do you call them? Thank you. The cashier asked each of us, you know, what would you like? And we told them, well, to the third one, they asked this. Would you like your meal bear-sized? Well, we know what that means, right? Bigger. More. But to a German fella who's standing there and he hears, do you want your meal bear-sized? I guess, well, he simply said it this way to me. He looked when his food came and he looked at me and he said, I don't think I understood. Because all, all he did, right, uh, he explained to me, is he just politely smiled and nodded and went, yeah, okay. And then this thing comes, right? So he didn't understand. And, you know, funny, the cashier, I feel like a German person comes and you ask them if they want a bear-sized, you're just asking for some kind of trouble to happen. But we talk that way, don't we, where we, uh, we input lots of slang into our vocabulary. Or we say things that we just assume other people are going to understand it. And I think Banff is really good for this because we have so many people come from all over the world that when we speak very slang type of language, we have all kinds of misunderstanding very quickly happening. And so we have to be more careful in the words that we choose. Well, remember, we're reading now from the book of Daniel that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago and written to a culture that we have very little understanding of. And so that's... I use that story to kind of help you get that in your mind that the next time you go somewhere, if all of a sudden you accidentally get a, you know, the McDonald's supersized fries by accident or something that you go, oh yeah, I didn't understand. It's very easy to get lost in that. So when we read things like the great beasts coming out of the sea in verse 1 and then in 17, the angel said the great beasts come out of the earth, we go, hold on, that contradicts itself. That's a modern mindset. That's us going, oh, that's not, that's not correct when they're activating imagery from all through the Old Testament. And they just, they wouldn't have that. They wouldn't go, oh, this contradicts itself. They would just understand what's happening here. And so let me read to you from uh, Stephen Miller's commentary on this. He says this, The people of the earth are portrayed as a great sea of humanity in a constant state of unrest, chaos, and turmoil. And this is an apt description of today's world as well. And so when we read about these kings coming out of the earth, Stephen Miller is arguing that what he's talking about is any secular kingdom that arises comes out of one that is not in submission to God. So they come with their own agendas, with their own definition of morality, with their own definition of right and wrong and good and bad. And that's the imagery that's being activated here. It's not talking about some supernatural being that comes up out and then rules over this kingdom and it's clear to us going, oh, now this is some, like it's, it's got wings and its wings are pulled off. And, like it's all imagery for us to understand the main point of what's happening is the angel is showing or God is showing to Daniel and the angel is interpreting for him. This is what's going to happen as the world moves forward. It's going to fall further and further and further into chaos and destruction because the less people know about God and the more they pursue their own interests, the more heartache comes across the world. I think that's something that we can all just say we see all over the place. 
Now, praise the Lord, there are moments in cultures where a revival breaks out, where people turn back towards God, and, and a time or for a season, things get much better. But if we learn anything through the Bible, we learn that those revivals never last, unfortunately. And so we find ourselves today in a world where if you turn on the, the news or you turn on social media or whatever it is and you see something, sometimes all you can do is shake your head and go, I have no idea even why someone would do that or say that or how could they think this? Because our world is broken and doesn't know who God is and these are things that happened all through the Old Testament and they're the same things that are happening now. So we have four beasts that represent four types of humanity. The four winds is often associated with God's judgment, and and Miller's commentary is excellent again, and he says this, In this context, however, the figure seems rather to denote factors of all kinds that produce turmoil among the earth's nations throughout history. This must be the case for the winds continually stir up the sea during the rise and the fall of all four empires. God's judgments are involved, but the turmoil describes primary results from the activities of persons who do not know God and the operation of Satan's forces upon humanity. So let me say that real simply this. Sometimes we really quickly forget that the blame lies a lot of times with our own decisions. We reap the results when we don't follow God when we don't submit to him and when we choose our own way and some catastrophic thing happens on us and we think somehow this is divine judgment on us, I think we're too quick to go there and sometimes we just go, you know, I made made my bed this way, now I gotta lie in it. This is just the reality of the decisions that I've made. You know, and the Jewish people saw that over and over, especially in the book of Exodus where they turn from God and then God kind of essentially goes, okay, I'm gonna let happen exactly what you want to happen to you, and then it happens and they go, God, why would you do this to us? And God goes, I just let you do what you wanted to do to yourselves. Now will you follow me and I'll show you a better way. Sometimes they would for a time. Sometimes they would reject him. And so when we read about these kinds of visions, um, let's not immediately jump to, oh, this is end time stuff. This is four literal kingdoms that are going to come in the very end times and the Antichrist is going to come from that kingdom. I think there's value to that interpretation, but I think that it loses sight of what the original context is trying to get across to us. Nebuchadnezzar very clearly is talked about. So chapter two again, The image that's given or the vision that's given to Nebuchadnezzar is the same idea that's given here. And so, you know, we could go into the the specifics of what each of these beasts represent. But again, I think if we do that, we lose sight of the point, I guess, of the text. All commentators agree that here, at least initially, these four kingdoms are the same as in chapter 2. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. There's all kinds of reasons why, and and again, so I want to give you some specifics. Nebuchadnezzar is talked about as a lion, but with wings in Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk. So this is not new. Miller again points out here, he says this, the lion's wings being torn off speaks of the king's insanity and loss of power. 
standing on two feet like a man receiving a human mind, denotes Nebuchadnezzar's humanitarian rule after his insanity, and the lion being lifted up from the ground indicates that it was God who raised up the king to his place of honor. That's chapter 4. We studied through that already. So we could spend a great deal of time going, okay, here's why it's very clear that this kingdom represents this, or sorry, this beast represents this kingdom. And again, I think those interpretations are correct, but not at the sight of losing the main point or the main thrust of the passage. What we are going to look at here is this fourth beast. Again, nearly every commentator admits that this represents initially Rome in accordance with the dream in chapter 2. But there are many commentators who talk about this first as Rome and then as the figure that we refer to in Scripture and in Thessalonians as the Antichrist or the one who will come claiming to be the second coming of Christ only to be in opposition to Christ. Is that correct? Is that a good uh, view? Sure. Do I know that to be the fact? No. So am I going to put all my eggs in that basket and try and interpret everything that I read in Revelation based on that view? No. Because I think that's dangerous. I think we get a very pigeonholed view of this is what the Bible is talking about then, and we lose sight of the context, and we lose sight of the point of the passage. I was listening to one Jewish expert talk about this passage this way. He said this, The more that I think about the end times, the less concerned I am about the questions of the Antichrist and what the end is actually going to look like, and the more concerned I am with the things that are written as to the specifics of what they Uh, and of what they represent. So in other words, what he's saying is this. He's less concerned with defining his interpretation in in a very specific box or category and saying that these things that are happening are a cyclical thing that continue to happen to all kingdoms, to all nations. And so whether we're talking about one specific individual figure at at the end of days, whenever that is, or not, we all as Christians living in the midst of can I say it this way? Those of us who are living in a culture that is anti-Christian, we know how to live because they've told us through these visions. Here's, how to put, here's where to put your hope. Here's the promise of what's coming. Here's how God is going to deal with the end at one point on one day. And the more I think about that, the less consumed I am with, oh, is Putin the Antichrist? Right? Like, that's a huge thing going on in social media right now. But again, that's not new. Right? Hitler was the Antichrist for many people. They looked at it and they said, this is clear. I would say he represented one who was the Antichrist. Anyone who exalts their own kingdom at the expense of others and just says, I am great, and is not submitting themselves under the rule of Christ is a sort of antichrist. This is why John says it this way in one of his letters. In 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he writes it this way. He says, he talks about antichrists having been here and antichrists continuing to be here, and there are those people. And he just generically gives it in that context. So let's not just assume we're talking about one individual, but let's remind ourselves of the cyclical nature of history 
so that we can go, why is God writing this to us? Why is he trying to tell us this? Why is he trying to remind us that don't worry that I win? Why is he trying to remind Daniel that? Because Daniel's lived his whole life in exile as a captive. And he's been faithful to God. But don't you think in the back of his mind, he's sitting there going, God, how are you going to do this? Jeremiah said that there would be a limited time that we would be in in exile, and then you would reestablish the kingdom, but I haven't seen that yet. We're going to talk about that in a couple of chapters because that timeline coincides where Daniel literally goes, those 70 years are up. What are you going to do now, God? Here's a reality for all of us. If we come to faith with a very poor, screwed-up view of who God is, then when life looks very different than what we've been promised, we're going to turn on that God real quick. This is why the health, wealth, prosperity gospel has done so much damage in the name of Jesus. Because it's promised that when you come to faith, you no longer have worldly troubles. Anybody know? Anybody here know worldly troubles? Right? We all do. And so then we're like, well, I was promised I wouldn't, so I'm not following this God. Because he didn't deliver what he said he would do. But what did Jesus say? In this world, what? You will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He doesn't say, but take heart, it'll all be better for you next week. He leaves it very ambiguous. And and all through the New Testament, what we read is the disciples going, okay, is it time for you to rule now? Like we're ready to be released from this Roman oppression. We're ready for you to reign as the king and have no more troubles. And in Acts, Jesus says, it's not for you to know those times or seasons. But I am going to be with you in the midst of this, but I'm not going to tell you when. It's not for you to know. And so I think it's very important for us that we, and we talked about this when we studied through the book of, or story, we were asked a question about the book of Job, is what is a proper biblical understanding to have a theology of suffering? Because we assume in this part of the world that all suffering is bad or is divine judgment against us for some bad decision that we made. The Bible has a different view of suffering. James says what? Count it as joy when you face trials. Why? Because you're actually being persevered. You're growing and you're strengthening and you're learning to trust God more because there's nothing that the world has to offer that's worth it. How do you learn that? Through suffering, through pain, through hurt. I know that doesn't sound like good news, but the Bible teaches it that it actually is good news. And it's for our good. So it changes the way in which when we go through suffering, we don't go, God, why would you allow this to go? And God, how can I honor you in this? And how can I bring you glory? That's very hard to do. Right? It's very easy to say until you're the one suffering or going through pain and heartache. And so Daniel here is being given this image because years before, Nebuchadnezzar was given this, and he was like probably given this great deal of hope as, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going down. And then, and then the kingdoms after you're going down, and Christ is going to rule. Well, he didn't know Jesus, right? But the Messiah is going to rule. But now he's an old man, and he's going, it hasn't happened yet. So what are you doing, God? Without beating this horse to death, I think we can see ourselves in that, can't we? We go through a crisis, we go through pain, we go through some significant loss or hurt, and we go, God, what are you doing? 
And we go back to passages like this to remind us that yes, there is suffering and yes, there is hurt and yes, the world is an evil place that is going to have great deal of impact on it, but don't worry because one day, one day Christ is coming again and he will rule. There'll be no more hurt and no more pain and no more sadness. And every tear will be wiped from our eye and we will be with Christ in eternity. And we need to be reminded of that often because we live in a broken and a fallen world. So we see in verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took a seat. This is a term for God the Father. He has come and he's going to judge and he's going to conquer and I love how almost anticlimactic it is as Daniel's looking at this fourth beast in, in terror and fear. And it says, the beast, this is verse 11, the beast was killed and its body destroyed to be burned in the fire. In Revelation, John kind of talks about this, this battle for all of earth is going to take place and, and Satan or the Antichrist or however the interpretation comes, basically a huge army is going to come against Christ and Christ is basically going to go, no. And it's done. Why? Because the world has nothing on God. God created the world by simply speaking, and it happened. This God has power beyond. What's really interesting to me is as we read through kind of 9, 10, 11, 12, and then we get into 13 and 14, what we see very clearly for us at this point in history, is we can look back at this and we can see God talking in the sense of Jesus' first coming, but also of his second coming and his rule. And I don't think that Daniel specifically understood those things, but there's so much rich theology found in this. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you don't read Jesus in those verses, then you're reading the Bible wrong. It's clear. He wins. Christ is coming again. What's really interesting to me is this. This term, son of man, we find this only in two places in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel. And in Ezekiel, it's talked about to the prophet, and he's just this generic term of you are a son of man or a son of humanity. But in Daniel, it has a different connotation, and Jesus actually quotes this specific passage, but Jesus refers to himself as the son of man from this text more often than any other term that he gives himself in all of the New Testament. It's pretty interesting. So when Jesus is talking about, I am the son of man, and we're going to read it here in just a minute, but when he says, I am the son of man, he's activating this text. I'm here, and my kingdom will rule forever. I will have dominion. I will have authority. Why is that so important? Well, let's look there. Let's flip to... Uh, Mark chapter 14. Kind of right near the end. We're just going to read 61 and 62, but 
starting at verse 53, what you have here is uh, Jesus has been brought before uh, kind of the authorities to kind of, they're trying to kill him. And they're trying to find false witness against him. They're trying to find some kind of a way to prove that he's guilty of blasphemy so that they can kill him because they want him, they want him out. He's been making some wild accusations according to the Pharisees. But in the text, it says that no, no, two, uh, argue, or no two false testimonies could agree, and, and they, they can't make any charge stick against Jesus. And so in verse 60, the high priest stands up and he says to Jesus, Have you no answer to make? Uh, what is it that these men testify against you? It says, But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. The high priest knew when he quoted Daniel 7 what he was claiming. Jesus was claiming very clearly, I'm who the Old Testament was about. I am the one who's come to renew the world. I'm the one who's come to bring redemption so that man can live with God again. I'm the one that is going to conquer and my rule will have no end. And the high priest goes, you're challenging our authority because we're the ones in control, not you. Again, a few different people that I read and listened to this week talked about it in this sense. To Jesus, when he's talking about, when he's quoting himself from this Daniel 7, his focus is not on the end of the world. His focus is on helping the people understand right then and there that you have misunderstood the Bible. Right? He's talking to the Jewish people. You've misunderstood who the scriptures are about and who the one that is coming that is going to make all things new. And so he claims, and he basically says it this way, you think Rome is the enemy, but actually you're the enemy of the gospel because you refuse to submit yourself to my words. That's what Jesus says. And so to us, he's saying that same thing as Jesus is who he claimed he was. And so how we live should all be in representation of that. This is why I'm so excited for the gospel symposium. Because I think so often we dichotomize my spiritual life with my work life. And I don't think that exists in the Bible. I think that's something we've done. If you're, you know, maybe if you're a missionary, you can go, well, yeah, these things correlate real easy, so that makes good sense to me. But, but, but what if I'm a carpenter? Well, if you're a carpenter, God has given you skills that I do not have. And if God has given you those skills, he's given you the ability to use them for his glory and for his honor. Paul says it this way, whatever you do, what? Do it for Christ. So do you think if you're a carpenter, God wants you to be a really poor carpenter who builds people's homes really poorly? Or do you think he wants you to demonstrate honor and integrity and faithfulness with how you build? That's why I'm excited that we're having a barista come because I think sometimes we can look at it and we can be like, in, in a world like this, is that's a very transitional job where you come just for a few months so that you can go off to do something else and it's kind of a means to an end. And I think your job is a means to an end, but not for you, but for Christ. Your job exists, yes, so you can pay the bills, 
Yes, so you can, you know, send your kids to school and put food on the table and all those things. But you're not in your job because God didn't ordain it. You're there because God brought you to this place. Put you in that season. Put you in that moment and then said, I have purpose for you in this. So I think we need to view this more holistically and less dichotomized the way that we kind of tend to nowadays. And Jesus in this Mark, 6, Mark 14 passage is basically trying to say this, is you misunderstood all of the gospel. You misunderstood that the, new, that the Old Testament was pointing to me. You misunderstood that I have to go to the cross and die so that sin could be forgiven. I'm going to rise again and that one day I'm going to come back again and I'm going to conquer and I'm going to rule. And so we, we just celebrated Easter, right, just last week. And so we look at this and we are reminded that even Jesus' own disciples didn't think that Jesus was supposed to die. Peter actually rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. He goes, no, that's not going to happen. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for you're thinking about things of the world, not things about God. Again, this is why I say it's very dangerous for us to just assume when we read passages like this in Daniel 7, he's talking about our context. This is the end of the world. We're at the very precipice now. It's a very egocentric way to view scripture. Is it relevant to our context? 100% it is. But it's relevant in every generation's context. Because everyone since the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve choose their own way, goes through hardship and pain and hurt and difficulty and despair and hopelessness and all these things. And so any emotion, anything that you're feeling, someone else has gone through that too. And God has been at work through Scripture saying, look, I'm in, I'm at, I have a plan. The Messiah back then, the Messiah is going to come. To the disciples, he's going to come, he's here, but he looks a little bit different than you expect. Now to us, the world that you live in, you maybe think should have been conquered by now and Jesus should be reigning. Well, he isn't yet, but he will. And so we're reminded when we get to apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature and when we get to these things about eschatological things and we're unsure how do we interpret these things, make sure that we understand the point of the text first. What's the point? Jesus wins. God is sovereign. And God is on his throne no less today than he was then, than when Jesus came, than now when we see all kinds of horrific things happening all over the news, God is still in control. God still has purpose. God's still at work. Let's not try and look to the end in the sense of, man, I've got to figure out all the details. I've got to know, is the tribulation seven years exactly? Is that right? Is that what time, or half a time, time and times means? I think that's wasting our time. That was, a, that was not written down. I apologize for that one. The point is always simply this. I can trust Christ no matter what the situation is today, no matter what I'm going through, he's in control. And whether tomorrow is my last day, whether today is my last day, or whether I have 100 years left from now, is God has purpose and meaning in those days, and so I'm going to live for him, not consumed with, is tomorrow the last day, but consumed with, what can I do today for the kingdom of Christ? 
What can I do to honor God with how I live and how I act, with how I work, with how I parent, whatever it might be? So when we read these texts, don't just try and relate them to our time. First, understand the point. Understand the main thrust of the passage so that we don't interpret it in an egocentric way of going, ah, this proves that Jesus is coming back in the year 2025. When Jesus already said very plainly in the Gospels, you don't know when I'm coming back. Rather, let's remind ourselves Jesus is coming back. The when, that's not as important. The important thing is that he will because he is faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you for texts like this, and, and it can be very easy to get sidetracked and to focus on you know, beasts and imagery and, and try and relate them and to make them into our own context. But I pray that rather than do that, we would try and see what it's trying to teach us. For Daniel, one who had lived his whole life in captivity, he was still waiting for his nation to be made whole again. For us, in our moments today, maybe we're not waiting for the same thing that Daniel was. But perhaps we're going through very similar difficulties. Perhaps we're wondering, is, is God in control? If God was in control, how could this be happening? Or why would this war be raging? Or why is this situation going on in my life? When we read things like this, may it bring us comfort to remind us that you have set aside a day when Christ will return again and will conquer. And so we live in eager expectation of that day, admitting that we do not know what that day is, but that we are guaranteed that it's coming because you are faithful to your word and you have promised. And so, God, I pray for each one here this morning. Many that I don't know, some that I do, but none that I know well enough to say, this is exactly what's in their heart today. I don't know that. You do. And so, God, whatever is in our hearts today, whatever hurt is causing us angst and confusion and stress and pain and uncertainty, God, I pray that you would help us to understand that these are temporary things. That while you haven't promised a pain-free life, you have promised a life that has purpose and meaning. And that we can trust in you because you will be faithful from now until the end. And so God, I pray for comfort for every single person here. For whatever the situation is that they're dealing with. Whatever hurt, whatever struggle, whatever burden they're facing today. Would they be encouraged in the reminder that you win. May we trust you for that day. Go with us today. Remind us of the importance of the gospel being reminded into our hearts every single day. We love you. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and I think we have, yeah,